You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. This week on the podcast, we'll be talking to Veronica Addis, an obstetrician and gynaecologist from New York who's recently returned from South Sudan, the world's youngest country. Veronica's been working in the city of Awail, which sits at the heart of northern Bar el Ghazal, the country's poorest state. Despite the city being relatively untouched by the civil war, Awail is affected by other crises. Malaria is rife, and with a lack of health facilities, few mothers have a safe place to give birth. MSF works in the only hospital in the city, providing round-the-clock paediatric and maternity services. We're there to make sure we can respond with emergency procedures, like caesarean sections, for mothers at risk. In 2015, more than 4,500 mothers gave birth in this maternity ward, and we assisted hundreds of complicated deliveries. Veronica is one of our most prolific bloggers, and she's on her way to becoming a veteran MSFer. This was actually the second time Veronica works in a whale, having previously travelled to South Sudan for her first mission in 2012, which you can read about at blogs.msf.org. The following is a true story by Veronica about one of the many complicated deliveries she encountered in a whale. The words are read by actor Aspen Rice. It's Friday night, and the expat team is winding down. Most of the team works regular hours, but I am on call 24-7 in case of any complications in maternity. Since it's the weekend, people are relaxing and staying up later than they normally would during the week. By 11.30, the party is winding down, and just a few people are left talking on the sofas. My phone rings, and one of the local midwives tells me he has a patient he is concerned about. Dr. Veronica, I have a patient here. She has three previous stillbirths and she is here complaining of vomiting. She is also worried about the baby. The fetal heart rate is 170. With three previous stillbirths, I have to worry about several things. One, is her pelvis too small to fit a fetus? She could have started labour with each one but have been unable to pass the baby. If so, she would need a C-section. Two, Does she have some kind of genetic problem that causes her blood to clot abnormally? That could cause stillbirths, and there would be very little I could do in this setting. Or three, does she just have incredibly bad luck in a setting with extremely poor access to obstetric care? Maybe the three previous stillbirths were unrelated. So many women here have stillbirths or neonatal deaths, and there is no consistent reason. Regardless, I have to do everything I can to ensure that this child survives. Having lost the previous three children, this woman must be desperate to have one survive. I review some of the vital signs with the midwife and ask him to check her temperature again to make sure she doesn't have an infection that could be causing the vomiting and the high heart rate. When I arrive on the labour ward, the interpreter and the midwife help me to evaluate the woman. She looks weak and tired and I am not surprised that she was recently vomiting. The midwife tells me that her cervix is three centimetres dilated, but still thick, 
and she is having some contractions, but does not seem to be in real labour. Her pelvis feels adequate, sufficiently roomy to deliver a fetus. I bring the ultrasound over to evaluate the fetus. It has good fluid and is measuring at full term. I discuss the plan with the midwife. I tell him to give her some IV fluid and resuscitate her. It's possible that she just has gastroenteritis and the dehydration is causing her to have false contractions. If so, they will go away when she feels better. I can understand her concerns about the three previous stillbirths, but since the fetus looks good and she will be staying in the hospital, we can decide how to manage that tomorrow. I tell him to monitor the fetal heart rate every two hours, just to be very careful. He agrees. Back at base, I mull over her case. What could have caused her stillbirths? How can I prevent this one? Doing a C-section for her isn't the greatest option. Most of the women here live several hours' walk from the nearest health centre, and having one C-section would make the next pregnancy much more complicated and potentially endanger her now and in the future. I have to consider the woman herself, not just the fetus. Nonetheless, I am very sympathetic to how devastating three prior stillbirths must be, especially here in South Sudan, where it is extremely important for women to produce children, and most women have six, eight or ten children. She might even be at risk of being abandoned by her husband if she cannot produce a healthy baby. Here, a pregnancy after multiple poor outcomes is referred to as a precious baby. I know all babies are precious, but I can certainly understand the term. Back home, a woman who has had even just one stillbirth would have an extensive workup and in her next pregnancy she would have regular fetal monitoring and her labour would be induced before her due date to prevent it from happening again. I decide that this woman should be induced as well. My measurements for this fetus show that the fetal size was equivalent to 38 weeks and 6 days, and the fetal thigh bone, probably the most accurate at this point, was measuring 42 weeks, so this baby can come out without concern for being preterm. I know that the mother will be relieved to be delivered. When I arrive on maternity the next day, Roisin, the expat midwife on her first MSF mission, has seen her on rounds and relays to me that she is asking for a C-section. I am sure that this is the only way the woman can imagine her baby is going to get out safely. I find an interpreter and go to see her. I sit down on her bed next to her and I ask her more extensive questions about her prior losses. What happened in her other pregnancies? The interpreter confers with her. The water was leaking, and then she went to the hospital, and she had labour, and the babies were dead. How long was the water leaking? Sometimes three days, sometimes five days. Was the baby dead before labour or after labour started? Before labour. Was she sick during the delivery or was she okay? She was okay. Was it the same for each delivery? Yes, the same each time. To me, it sounds like she broke her water before the onset of labour, which can often happen in a normal pregnancy. Labour did not start, but she did not have easy access to a health centre. Infection set in and the baby died each time, and by the time she did seek care and go into labour, it was already dead, 
This is a terribly sad story, but it is also good news for her now. From what I can tell, it is a non-recurring cause of stillbirth, meaning that it will not necessarily occur again. It is a coincidence that it happened to her three times in a row, but it does not mean anything is wrong with her. Her pelvis is not too small, she does not have a blood clotting disorder and nothing else is wrong with her. If we induce her labour, she will in all likelihood have a healthy, normal baby via vaginal delivery. I explained to her that three to five days of leaking water is too long, and I explained my theory of what happened in her previous pregnancies. I also explained that she probably wants very much for this baby to survive, and I do too. I tell her that there is a medicine I can give her that will make her labour come now before her water breaks, and it should cause her to deliver within the next day. I tell her that since she has pushed three babies before, I think she will be good at pushing. The interpreter relays this to her. She looks unfazed. She says this is okay. Pushing will not be a problem. I smile and offer my hand and she takes it and we share the mutual, warm, South Sudanese handshake. So deep it feels like a hug. Because she is not in labour, I want to use an induction agent that will both soften her cervix and cause contractions. Misoprostol is an excellent medication for this. It is temperature-stable, great for hot climates like this, 109 degrees Fahrenheit or 42.7 degrees centigrade as I'm talking to her, and very effective. I don't want to give too high of a dose, as it can cause excessive contractions. The pill we have here is 200 micrograms, but I only want to give 20 to 25 micrograms at a time. I dissolve it in a bottle of water and teach the nursing staff to give her 60 cc's of the liquid every two hours. They have never done this before, and they are amused and fascinated, and maybe a little sceptical. Twelve hours later... Roisin tells me she is only starting to feel some cramping, which is fine. They are continuing to monitor her and she is doing well. By the next day, she has delivered. When I come in, the staff immediately approaches me to ask about liquid misoprostol. Is it in MSF protocols? It is. Can they use it in the future? They can. I go with the interpreter to visit the mother. I ask if the baby is okay. And she nods, but doesn't smile. I ask if she is feeling well, and she says she is feeling well, but doesn't smile. I ask if she is happy or sad. The interpreter repeats the question, and she breaks into a large grin. She is very happy. She shows me the baby, and now she is all smiles. It's a girl. I tell her that she should use family planning for two years before having the next child so that she can take care of this child. She nods and says that she will. The Ministry of Health sends a family planning team around to the postpartum ward every day to place implants and offer other family planning options. This is a huge improvement over my last mission here four years ago when options were limited. You need to make sure she is strong so she can grow up to be the president of South Sudan. The interpreter repeats this, and she and her mother both laugh and agree. Her mother says something, and the interpreter relays it. She says maybe she will even grow up to be a doctor like you. 
We laugh, then I thank her. I hold out my hand to the patient, and we shake hands, like a hug. Since writing that story in February, Veronica has recently returned home to New York, where she's back at work in a Manhattan hospital. Our producer, Fabio Bassoni, joined me to speak to Veronica via Skype from her hospital office. Welcome to the podcast, Veronica. How does it feel to be back in New York? It feels good. Uh, The weather's a little cooler and um, it's home. This was your third mission with MSF, wasn't it? And you'd been to South Sudan previously. That's right. Um, My first mission was in 2012 and I spent four weeks in South Sudan. My second mission was in the end of 2013, November to December 2013. And this was my third mission back to the same location in South Sudan in a town called Awil. Um, But before that, I actually had done other things. So I had lived in Uganda, um, not with MSF, for a year and then on and off for another two years. So I had a lot of experience. What what makes you keep coming back to MSF? Why do do you want to to keep working with MSF? So I always warn people it's a little dangerous to start uh, because once you do one mission, um, you will spend the rest of your life trying to go back. Um, I think what's very addictive is that Um, the work is the best work you'll ever do. Um, It's real medicine and it's pure medicine. So you are freed from all of the bureaucratic burdens that you do at home of the paperwork and the nonsense, but also that patients are so sick that you really feel the difference that you're making. Um, And you, your intervention really makes a huge difference. And so there's this extraordinary gratification It's kind of like you were living in black and white and you didn't know it. And then you go and do MSF and all of a sudden everything's in color and you realize what you were missing. As a doctor, what what were the main challenges you faced in South Sudan compared with working back home in New York? One of the wonderful things about being in the United States is that for the most part, we are catching um, abnormal labor patterns in time. We make these decisions based on clinical protocols and we say, okay, because we don't want to get to the point where the baby dies or almost dies. The baby should never almost die. Nobody should almost die. But in South Sudan, we see so many babies die that you don't really even think about it. If the mother doesn't die, that's a miracle. Um, And so you're really seeing the difference because you are saving these people. You're saving babies. You're saving mothers. It's incredible, and you see what a difference a C-section makes. You get there just in time. And then you really, really realize the difference that modern obstetrics makes at home because women have access to it all the time. One clinical example of that is a woman who came to me, and her baby was dead, and the arm was hanging out of her vagina. I couldn't save her baby, but I saved her. And if she had stayed at home, she would have eventually died of an infection because there was no way to get that baby out. She walked for hours to a local health facility that couldn't help her, waited for hours, then drove for hours on horrible roads to get to me, and I delivered this baby, her eighth baby, by C-section to save her life. And that's incredibly dramatic. In the United States, we would have caught the fact that her baby was in the wrong position by ultrasound. We would have done a very simple C-section before she was ever in labor and got her baby out in advance, and there would have been no drama about it. But in her case, it was this huge, dramatic thing. Um, It felt really great, but in reality, I wish that she'd been there much earlier and had gone home with a live baby. 
Hi, Veronica, it's Fabio here. I was just wondering, um, when you're treating a, a woman like that, what kind of psychological toll does it take on, on them? And uh, is there any support for them? Um, the psychological toll is huge, but it's very hard for me to know. In South Sudan, culturally, the women are incredibly stoic, probably because their lives are so hard. It's almost impossible to come across a woman who's had several children and not lost at least one. This woman who had the arm hanging out of her vagina while she was still waiting to go to the operating room, she was not crying. She was had no facial expression. And when I said to her, uh, it could be a painful surgery, she stopped me and she looked me in the eye and said, bring the pain, I can take it. Which was such an intense thing to say to me. But she must be suffering from the death of her infant. I know she must be. We don't have the resources, we don't have therapists to be able to break that down. And I always try to be at the patient's bedside and see if they want to talk to me. I also don't want to pry. And as a foreigner, as a white person, I may not be the person that they want to reveal that side to. So I don't want to impose. I have to imagine that that mourning happens somewhere. So I would imagine that these losses and this pain and the suffering is taking its toll and culturally um, talking about it and mourning it happens in silence or maybe in private, not in front of me, I don't know. Um, but I'm sure they do mourn in some way. Um, I have a question. The medical complication sounds um, incredibly difficult to manage, but it sounds like there's also a lot of um, social stigma for women in that position as well. And you mentioned in your blog uh, that if they're unable to uh, conceive or to deliver a healthy baby, they may risk uh, abandonment from their husbands. Um, I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the cultural context of, of having babies in South Sudan and um, the burden that women face there. Yeah, um, well, I should preface it by saying that I was in South Sudan for such a short time so I can't say I fully understand the context, um, and different patients I would meet surprised me, so I don't want to speak for everybody and say that it's monolithic. But um, I certainly came across enough to say that many people expressed concern for women who had trouble conceiving or having healthy babies. Larger families were considered a source of pride, um, especially in rural areas. When women presented to the hospital, sometimes the men came with them and sometimes they didn't. I didn't always know what the woman's situation was. Um, for example, I had cases where women were having complications, but the husbands were very involved and very concerned um, and really just seemed mostly concerned for the woman's health. Uh, I had other cases, for example, a woman who had had too complicated pregnancies. So both of these are not her fault, and she never really developed a normal fetus. And she really suffered for the miscarriages and was very upset. But her husband, instead of giving her support, started ranting to me that um, he would never would have married her if he'd known that she couldn't bear children. She was only 18 years old and very upset, and I thought she needed his support in that moment. So I was very sad to see that after only two miscarriages, he was already giving up on her. But I saw other examples of men being very supportive to their wives, so, so I think it really depends. I think that 
I often felt pressure and I often made assumptions that women had a burden to have a lot of children. I heard enough from the staff that I needed to be aware of that cultural influence um, and just understand that it's a very important uh, factor in the culture. And so in the case of this woman who had lost three pregnancies, she didn't ever tell me that her husband might leave her, um, but it was in the back of my mind. Working in a place like South Sudan, uh, your your day-to-day experience as a doctor can be relentlessly intense. Do you, do you find yourself ever becoming desensitized to it at all? Um, I don't ever want to be that person that says, oh yeah, I saw that horrible thing, but so what? I've seen that a million times. I want to be horrified every time I see something horrible. Because if you get to that point that you're saying, so what, then you need to get out of it. You should be galvanized. You should be horrified. You should be angry. I am infuriated that women are still dying in childbirth. We know how to stop it. We know what it takes, and we just don't want to. And I don't think that it's weak to be angry about things like that. I think that you have to keep that anger, and that's what keeps you going and keeps you doing the work. And and doing the advocacy. Some of what you went through in South Sudan must have had an emotional toll. Um, I just wanted to ask you about how you process those kind of experiences. Presumably that's something that happens when you return from a mission. Um, I did not realize how hard my mission was. I had a couple of really emotionally taxing maternal deaths that I took to heart. Uh, I had that stretch of four days where I didn't sleep and really two-week period that was incredibly difficult. And MSF, they actually have you meet with a therapist when you come back. Um, And I think this is really wonderful, maybe because I'm a New Yorker and everybody in New York is in therapy, but I think this is really wonderful um, because they don't wait for you to say, I need to meet with somebody. They just say, you're meeting with this person Um, because I would be somebody who would say, I don't need it. But you sit down with this person and, and she actually asked me about the maternal deaths. And I realized how much those deaths had affected me that I was not admitting to myself. I, to anybody else, I would have said, yes, it was sad, but I dealt with it. I've, I've had deaths before. I was okay. But for some reason to this person, I could really admit that these things had really knocked me off my feet and I was upset. Um, and I think that kind of um, objective, you know, outside person lets you be vulnerable. And as a person who is in a caretaker, I'm in a caretaker role, I don't want to admit that I'm vulnerable, but it's so important to have that. And I think that's something that MSF has come to realize. It's really important. And so you're one of our most prolific writers from the field. And this was, it was really hard finding one of your stories to to tell on the podcast. (laughs) Could you, (laughs) could you tell us a bit about what you get personally from, from writing in the field? Yeah. Um, you know, um, I have kept a journal since I could write. For me, it is like a thought process or a way of processing my emotions and figuring out my own thoughts. When I moved to Uganda, I started seeing crazy cases and I was all alone. I didn't have an MSF expat staff to talk to. I had nobody. The Ugandans were really nice, but they were used to it. And they were like, what? <laughs> this is life. So I needed somebody else to appreciate how crazy these situations were, you know, all these crazy things that the power was out and I needed to do a C-section with no power, things like that. So I started remembering that writing was such an outlet for me. And I 
instead of writing it in a journal, I typed it on my computer and then I started a blog. Actually was worried I would get a lot of criticism for it. I'm not sure why, but I remember being terrified before I posted my first blog post. Um, but people responded very positively, mostly friends and family. Um, and they were actually just blown away by what I was seeing. And I got a lot of positive response and then they started sharing it with friends. And so when I started with MSF, I also wanted to do the same. And so for me, it's an outlet. It's a way of saying, um, here's what I'm seeing and thinking and feeling. A lot of people say things like, oh, you're such a hero, you know, and they want to put me on this pedestal. And I want to say, no, I'm a human. Um, I'm terrified sometimes. And then lastly, it's really important for me um, to do advocacy and to make people aware of these situations in the world that I think people aren't really paying attention to. And so by writing about the stories that I encounter, um, I hope that people will read them and then have it resonate and remember that and say, you know, that, that blog post that Veronica posted made it really real for me. It's not just a statistic. That's what I hope. If you have any questions about anything you heard in this podcast, make your way to msf.org.uk slash podcast and leave us a comment. We've also posted links to other stories written by Veronica, as well as links to other articles and videos about MSF's work in South Sudan. For more of a background on the current situation there, have a listen to our second episode, Saving Lives Amid Chaos. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us on Twitter at msf underscore uk, on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders or on Facebook. Next time on Everyday Emergency. Even though you know the treatment has become intolerable for them, you still hope that they will take it because it's the only thing you can offer. It's a really terrible situation to be in. We'll be speaking to Australian doctor Amrita Ronichit, who spent last year battling TB in Uzbekistan. Be sure to tune in. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast. Hold up. 